Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 28th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast, a top 10 legal podcast according to some organization I've never heard of. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California Boutique Law Firm of Morris & Stone. Boutique because we have a defined practice area and because we sell clothes for lawyers. We call them lawsuits. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris Esk, Aaron Morris ESQ. I've been talking to a very nice woman who was thinking of pursuing a slapback action following a successful anti-slap motion. She called to say that she had been researching various attorneys for the job, and as part of the research, she had binge-listened to all 27 episodes of my podcast. So we first discussed where her life had gone so terribly wrong that she would have time and inclination to listen to every episode of my podcast. And during our conversation, she asked why me, the master of motions, the prince of procedure, the sultan of slap, would also be in the business of seeking to reduce attorney's fees following anti-slap motions. If someone had to fight off a slap, shouldn't they be fully reimbursed for all their attorney's fees, she asked. I think I've made the point here before, but if someone who just binged listened to all 27 episodes didn't pick up on it, then I probably haven't made the point very well. Yes, absolutely, someone who successfully fights off a slap should get all their attorney fees, but only if those fees are reasonable. I only agree to fight to reduce the attorney fees when they are clearly unreasonable. Absent some extraordinary circumstance, an anti-slap shouldn't take more than 50 hours from conception to oral argument. I told the story here of the firm that sought $400,000 in attorney's fees for an anti-slap motion, which included 80 hours just to prepare a memorandum on whether they should prepare an anti-slap motion, and then had three attorneys spend 50 hours preparing for oral argument. Yes, in situations like that, it is appropriate to ask to reduce the fees. Good times here at Morrison Stone. I count my blessings every day that we have created such a successful, satisfying, and entertaining practice. Stick around for the after show, and I'll tell you about a very entertaining trap I set for opposing counsel on a motion to quash. In addition to that entertainment, we won an anti-slap motion and prevailed on an appeal from another anti-slap we had won. The first case presented an interesting anti-slap issue. The case involved a custody dispute. Plaintiff sued our client, claiming he had falsely accused her of child abuse in certain court documents and in a call to the police. Plaintiff happened to be an attorney and was well aware of the anti-slap statute, but she, she thought she could get around it with Penal Code Section 11172. In case you're unfamiliar with it, Section 11172 has to do with reports of child abuse and provides immunity against defamation for mandated reporters. But it also provides for civil liability for reports of child abuse to non-mandated reporters. Thus, Section 11172 creates dissonance between the absolute immunity for reports to the police created by Civil Code Section 47 and the anti-slap statute versus the liability created by Section 11172 of the Penal Code. So back to our case. The plaintiff alleged that our client had made false reports of child abuse in court documents and to the police. Clearly, the statements in the court documents would not support a defamation action, but the reports to the police specifically fell under Section 11172. 
But I pulled the police report in question and there was no mention of any claim of child abuse. Our client had called the police to ask for a welfare check, but had not made any claim of child abuse. So it really came down to a second prong analysis. It appeared that the allegedly false report to the police officer would fall under the anti-slap statute because of section 11172. But then the burden would shift to plaintiff to show that she was more likely than not to prevail on her claim, and at a minimum would first require her to provide competent evidence proving that my client had made a claim of child abuse. So I brought the anti-slap motion asserting that all of the statements in the court documents were privileged and that there was no evidence that our client had ever reported child abuse to the police. The plaintiff could only flounder in her opposition. She claimed that there must have been a report of child abuse because why else would the police have performed a welfare check? Well, the judge didn't believe it and granted our anti-slap motion. We were awarded 100% of our very reasonable attorney fees. Our second victory came on appeal. In prior episodes, I told the story of our client who was sued because the plaintiff thought he had defamed her using the name Magic Man. We prevailed on our anti-slap motion by establishing that plaintiff could offer no evidence that our client was Magic Man because he wasn't. We brought a motion for attorney fees and again were awarded every penny of our very reasonable attorney fees. As is our practice, before bringing the motion for attorney's fees, we give the plaintiff the opportunity to settle up and thereby avoid the cost of the motion for attorney fees. Our offer was rejected. Plaintiff then appealed and we wrote to explain that there was no theory upon which plaintiff could prevail on appeal and explaining that the plaintiff would be responsible both for any time I spent on collections and any time I spent on the appeal. Plaintiff didn't care. I set the plaintiff for a judgment debtor's exam, and she posted a bond the day before the exam, which is often the case. Her counsel then three times requested extensions for the opening brief, and when the time for the opening brief finally came around, she dismissed the appeal. I then gave her the opportunity to settle up before I incurred the expense of yet another motion for attorney's fees for all the time spent on appeal and collection efforts. Again, my offer was rejected. So I brought another motion, and again, every penny of my very reasonable additional attorney fees was granted. I submitted the claim to the bond company, and they wrote a check for the full amount. Since she was had posted the bond on appeal, now I just went after the bond company, and they paid it. Now, I've never been on that side of the equation, but I would imagine that there were additional charges resulting from the bond company having to pay the amount. In fact, the bond company had requested a short delay from me so they could give the plaintiff the opportunity to pay directly. I just don't get what plaintiff had hoped to accomplish. And finally, a victory for the legal community, at least in the San Jose area. Way back in episode 20, I discussed an appeal from a trial I had lost where the judge did not understand basic evidentiary principles. The case was reversed on appeal with the Court of Appeal referring to the judge's reasoning as perplexing. What I did not tell you was how unprofessional the judge had acted in that matter. The judge was Ariadne Simons, and before hearing any evidence, it was clear she had decided the case. She steered the case where she wanted to go and would not permit any evidence that was beneficial to my client. For example, my client testified that she had obtained an injunction against the defendant at the commencement of the action. It was a minor point and didn't prove much, but Judge Simons couldn't let it go. In front of the jury, she grilled my client. She asked if my client was an attorney, which she was, and said, well, isn't it true that you can put anything you want in an application for an injunction and the judge will just sign off on it? To which my client quite properly answered, no, that's that's not how it works. It would be quite an indictment on judges to think that they will just sign whatever a party submits. But the judge made clear that she did not agree with that assessment to create the impression that my client was lying to the jury. 
there were many such similar examples. So anyway, based in part on the way Judge Simons behaved during my trial, the Commission on Judicial Performance issued her a severe public censure, which is the strongest sanction that may be imposed on a judge short of removal from the bench. Multiple attorneys swept in to run for her seat, and seeing the writing on the wall, Judge Simons announced that she would not be seeking re-election. Now, I don't want to sound too joyful over this, but what I witnessed was really outrageous, and I think the legal community is well served by this result. Let me also say that I never reported her to the commission. I was content to let her rulings be reversed on appeal. I I don't know who initiated the process, but it came out with a good conclusion. So let's get to today's case. This will be a little different because this is a case I have that's still pending on appeal. I can't give you the result, but the facts are very interesting and we can wait together in real time. My client, let's change the facts a little. Let's say he had a potential defamation case and he wanted to know if his case was viable. We'll call him George. George went to an attorney, we'll call him Esquire, who said he would charge $10,000 just to do an analysis on whether George had a viable case. And to keep the facts close, let's say that this particular defamation claim might require scientific experts to determine the truth or falsity of the statements made. Esquire's fee agreement provided that he would retain the necessary scientists as necessary and that the $10,000 would cover the costs of any scientists. This is very important. Esquire's fee agreement provided that any fee dispute must be decided by the state bar arbitration process and that any ruling by the arbitrator is binding. Three months go by and Esquire informs George that he is ready to give his opinion on the viability of his defamation claim. Esquire summarizes the fact, which George already knew, and then concludes that George has no case. Well, George is upset by this turn of events. He feels like Esquire didn't do much for the $10,000. He asks if Esquire consulted with any experts, and Esquire confirms that he did not, pointing to the language in the fee agreement that he would only consult experts as necessary, and given his vast knowledge on the topic, he did not feel it was necessary. Now, in Esquire's defense, he did have to review about 4,000 pages of records as part of the process. George looks at the fee agreement and sees that he must submit the dispute to arbitration. He looks at the San Francisco State Bar website, and it specifically states that the process is an informal, low-cost way to have a fee dispute decided without having to hire an attorney. George and Esquire go to the fee arbitration, and George loses, due in part, in my opinion, because he was not represented by counsel. So Esquire is allowed to keep the entire $10,000 fee. Now, even though the fee agreement had provided the arbitration was binding, it wasn't. An attorney can't make the arbitration binding in advance. But nonetheless, George does not challenge the ruling. He got to vent about how he thought Esquire did not earn his $10,000. Esquire got to keep his fees. Everybody should go their own way. But Esquire would not let it go. He turns around and files a malicious prosecution action against George for daring to challenge his fees. So George hires me to defend him against this malicious prosecution action. And as I always say, hand me a cheeseburger and I'll do an anti-slap analysis. I looked at the situation and decided it warranted an anti-slap motion. It's a very simple fact pattern, but it turned out to be one of the most challenging anti-slap motions I've ever brought. And here's why. Case law is clear that an MFAA arbitration is an official proceeding under the anti-slap analysis. That satisfies the first prong. Now we have an interesting split under the facts of this case. A party can pursue a malicious prosecution action following a judicial arbitration, but he cannot pursue a malicious prosecution following a contractual arbitration. Why, you ask? Thank you for participating. It simply comes down to the elements of malicious prosecution. The first element is a legal action commenced or prosecuted without probable cause. 
A judicial arbitration is deemed to be a legal action. A contractual arbitration is not because a court is never involved. I argued that this was a contractual arbitration because the fee agreement mandated arbitration. The parties went to arbitration because they had to under the contract. Sure sounds like contractual arbitration to me. And the reason I wanted it to be a contractual arbitration is because that would deal with the second prong of the analysis. The first prong was satisfied because this was an official proceeding by statute. And then, under the second prong, Esquire could not show a probability of prevailing since a contractual arbitration will not support a malicious prosecution action because there's just no litigation. It's, it's a contractual arbitration. But the judge went off on a weird tangent. He decided that the arbitration was a judicial arbitration because George had the ability to request a de novo trial if he wanted. By finding that it was a judicial arbitration, the judge could then perform a second prong analysis, and he found that Esquire could satisfy that prong. This made no sense to me. How can a contractual arbitration be judicial if no court is involved? Just because there is a procedure following the arbitration that could send it to the courts, it's not judicial until it's actually judicial. It's akin to saying that every trial is really an appeal because you can appeal after trial. It just made no sense to me. So I appealed, and oral argument was a few weeks ago. Argument was set for 9.30 in San Francisco, and I didn't want to be stressed with flying up the morning of the argument, so I went up the night before. I stayed at, let's say, a lower-end motel because it was situated less than a mile from the courthouse. I figured if traffic was terrible and I couldn't get an Uber, at least I could walk. Well, that was a special treat. If you ever find yourself staying at the Civic Center Motor Inn in San Francisco, don't let them put you in room 101. Room 101 is right on the end closest to the street, and there's a carport there that is blocked off with debris, so no cars parked there. Turns out that carport right outside my door is the designated meeting place uh, for all the, let's say, transients in San Francisco. They call the meeting to order around 11 p.m., and they loudly discuss world events until about 7 a.m. But as bad as my sleep was, the oral argument made up for it. There was one judge sitting by assignment, and she kept going back to the judicial aspect. She kept asking how the arbitration was not a judicial arbitration, and I kept responding that it was self-evident, because there is no court involved. By definition, it can't be judicial until there is a judicial, i.e. a court involved. And then she would respond, but it could have been judicial because George could have requested a trial de novo. And I would respond, but it wasn't judicial because George never did request a trial de novo. But he could have requested a trial de novo, she said, and so it went. The presiding judge, on the other hand, seemed to get it. He repeated my point that if George had requested a trial de novo, then it would be a different matter. A trial de novo would not only put it in front of a court, it would bring back all the formality. It would then be a formal proceeding with attorneys and rules of evidence. That would then be a judicial proceeding, and that would satisfy the first element of a malicious prosecution action. On this and other arguments, the presiding justice seemed clearly in my corner. Perhaps the most telling moment was when the presiding justice said the court had to look past this case and look at what their ruling will mean moving forward. He said that it would be problematic for the court to issue an opinion giving a green light to all attorneys to sue their clients for malicious prosecution following a fee arbitration. For his part, Esquire kept slipping and referring to how George had dragged him into court. Every time he would say that, the presiding judge would shout, He didn't drag you into court. You are the only one who made this a court matter. But my favorite moment was when Esquire was concluding and he made the argument that if the court finds in George's favor, 
Esquire will be hit with attorney's fees for the anti-slap motion. It was almost an equitable argument. Don't, don't, let, don't let him win, justices, because if you do, I'm going to get hit with attorney's fees. He said that would not be fair because he didn't do anything wrong. To that, one of the justices said, well, maybe you should, should have thought of that before you sued him for malicious prosecution. When I heard that come out of the justice's mouth, I thought I was probably going to carry the day. Now, it sure sounds like the appeal is going our way, but you never know. It it seems like the Court of Appeal was really bothered by the thought that attorneys can sue their clients for malicious prosecution for daring to question the fees. I had argued it's a real trap for the unwary client. The Bar Association draws in the client with the promise of a cheap, informal process where the rules of evidence are not observed and no attorneys are required. Then the attorney takes the result of this very informal process and declares it to be sufficient to support a malicious prosecution action. To this argument, Esquire responded that all a client has to do to avoid a malicious prosecution claim is not to bring a fee arbitration when there is no basis to do so. To this, the presiding justice responded, What if he just thinks that the $10,000 was too much for what you did? How is that malicious? Shouldn't he be able to have a panel consider the reasonableness of your fees? By the way, it's not like I have a transcript. These statements are, are just what I recall. I can't wait to receive the opinion. The court could split the baby. There is a case called Pace versus Superior Court where the Court of Appeal just announced that as a matter of public policy, one can't sue for malicious prosecution following a small claims appeal. I argued that the same reasoning applied here. So the court might announce that as a matter of public policy, a fee arbitration won't support a malicious prosecution claim and instruct the trial court to dismiss on that basis, but conclude that the anti-slap analysis just doesn't fit. Thank you so much for dropping by. If you made it this far, stick around for the brief after show. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. So I represented a client in a defamation action. What a shock. It was a long process with many subpoenas to ferret out the identity of the defendant defamer. We made it to the point of hitting the internet service provider Comcast with a subpoena and Comcast fought the subpoena with a motion to quash. We defeated that motion, and two days before Comcast was going to turn over the identity of the defendant, the defendant, appearing as a doe, brought his own motion to quash, so Comcast withheld the information while that motion was pending. Now, this is important. Defendant filed the motion, I filed the opposition, and defendant filed his reply. But a couple of days before the motion was to be heard, counsel for the still unidentified defendant contacted me and asked if we wanted to mediate to try to reach a resolution of the case. I was confident that we would win on the motion, but you can't be certain that the information provided by Comcast will finally give definitive proof of the identity of the defendant. So we agreed to the mediation since by definition that would require the defendant to attend and leave no question as to identity. Well, with 2020 hindsight, the whole thing was probably just a delay tactic. Defense counsel was squirrely about picking a mediator and then would not agree to a mediation date. It may have been their intention to delay, delay, delay in the hope that Comcast would no longer have the customer information, but we had sent a preservation letter, so that wasn't really a possibility. So I finally put my foot down and gave up on the mediation and told defense counsel to put his motion to quash back on calendar. But he did something really weird. Instead of just notifying the court that the motion was back on calendar, he filed the identical motion again, probably designed for further delay since he picked a new hearing date. Now you have the setup, and here is what followed, probably with way too much buildup for the punchline. Remember the motion, opposition, and reply had already been filed. Opposing counsel had just pulled up his original motion, changed the dates, and filed it with the court. Since defense counsel had filed an identical motion the second time around, I had a feeling that he would assume I would just respond with an identical opposition. 
Just to make sure he maintained that impression, I kept the first six pages of the opposition identical to the one I had filed the first time. If he skimmed it, he would think, yep, that's the same opposition. But starting at page seven, I had some fun. I took out his reply, which remember in this sequence of events has not technically been filed yet. So I took out his reply, I took out his reply and wrote the opposition as though I was prescient as to the arguments he would make in his reply. Defendant could conceivably cite to the case of Smith versus Jones for the proposition that a plaintiff cannot use a self-serving declaration to prove that the statements were false, but only someone with a law degree purchased at Walmart would make such an argument. And one would have to be suffering some malady of the mind to make the argument that in order to show there is no criminal investigation against the plaintiff, the plaintiff must actually provide a declaration from the police department to that effect. And so it went. As I'd anticipated, defense counsel proceeded to file his identical reply, failing to see how I had called him out. All of my barbs and jabs just went unanswered. Since the judge had never worked up the motion the first time around, this was all new to him, and I must have come across as truly omniscient, anticipating every argument defendant would make and every case he would cite. No doubt I also came across as a jerk, but an omniscient jerk nonetheless. Defendant's motion was denied, Comcast turned over the information, and we finally know the identity of the defendant. These are the sort of moments that you need to grab in order to keep the practice of law from becoming stale. Until next time, thanks for listening.